welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Hello, this is James, and welcome to the podcast. Our sponsor this week is the JEEC Foundation, which is hosting an international conference on open dialogue this August. And you can visit the website jaecfoundation.org for more information. Now, on to our interview. Hello and welcome to the Madden America podcast. I'm Zenobia Morrill, a science news writer for Madden America. And in this episode, I'm speaking with Kauri Wada, who is an associate professor and the director of training for the Counseling Psychology Program at Workland School of Education at the University of Calgary. She is a registered psychologist and sits on the Human Rights and Social Justice Committee of the Canadian Psychological Association. Her research interests include cultural and social aspects of grief. In December, we at Madden America covered her new paper about the medicalization of grief, which was published in the Palgrave Encyclopedia of Critical Perspectives in Mental Health. And in this podcast episode, we build on the themes of her new paper. We speak more about grief and new grief-related disorders in mental health, including recent additions to the DSM and ICD. We explore more what it means to medicalize grief, the paradoxes and the contexts that have shaped how grief is now being talked about and responded to in mental health fields. And finally, how these shifting narratives around grief might affect us. In fact, my understanding is your work, Kari, demonstrates that how we collectively demarcate what is normal grieving matters and has very real implications for how we interpret our own mourning and grieving rituals. So we'll get into this in a moment, but first, let me officially welcome you, Dr. Kauri Wada. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you so much for having me on Mad America. Absolutely. It's, it's our pleasure. You know, your work drew my attention to the major and recent developments and changes in how grief is being defined in the mental health field. Could you tell us what led you to research the ways grief is being construed? Have you always been interested in this topic? Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, so I'm uh, I'm from Japan, and uh, my interest um, in grief date back to you know uh, growing up in Japan and experiencing uh, multiple losses. And uh, after high school, I came to Canada as an international student, and uh, I got involved in uh, grief support groups and grief camps for children. And around that time, I started to, to study psychology. And uh, in my psychology courses, um, what I was learning, you know, some of the concepts that I was learning, you know, things like self-esteem, just didn't quite uh, fit well with me. And, um, and that was the same for, for grief as well. So, you know, in... Uh, uh, Western models of uh, Western models and theory of grief. There's there's this image that grief is a linear process, you know. So people go through stages, 
and uh, they perform certain tasks to complete, and then and then eventually they get they they get over and move on with that with their life, right? So um, I don't want to paint a simplistic picture of Western theories models because each of them has you know some some important nuances, but in general. Um, I think there is a, um, th- those theories, models have the effect of reinforcing this idea of um, grief as a very linear process, you know, whether or not the original theorist intended it. Right? Um, and also um, there's uh, this notion that continuing bonds or uh, internal conversation or relationship with dead as something that's not healthy. And, you know, as someone who grew up in Japan, I felt there's, you know, I felt some dis- dissonance to, to that way of thinking about death and grief. And uh, that led me to write a term paper on, uh, in, in my grad, you know, one of my graduate courses on understanding grief from a Buddhist psychology perspective. And that was um, that eventually was published in their studies. And, and around that time, I think, you know, I started to hear that um, the DSM task force was considering to add a new diagnostic category that's related to grief into its, its fifth edition. So I got really curious, you know, how, um, how this diagnosis will, you know, come to be given that you know the the predominant way of you know thinking about grief uh in english you know the in in the literature was very much based on this western world views and you know the knowledge that's generated by um psychology psychiatry you know including dsm is very powerful um and powerful in the way that you know it impacts people you know, around the world, right? So I become very curious about how this new disorder category uh, would change the way we grieve or the way we relate to others who are grieving. Yeah, you had noticed that the available Western narratives or psychological theories about grief were skewed and didn't fit your lived experience of grieving or the observations around you. But more than that, I'm hearing how it rendered any deviations from those theories. You know, you mentioned experiencing continuing bonds with the deceased as something that was unhealthy. That's right. Yes. Could you say a bit more about what you mean when you say grief is being medicalized? And what would be some of the recent developments or examples of medicalizing grief that we should be aware of? Yes. Uh, so uh, sociologist Pierre Conrad, um, he's been writing uh, about medicalization since 1970s. But to me, uh, his book um, called Medicalization of Society has a really n- a nice subtitle that captures what medicalization is. So that is on the transformation of human conditions into treatable disorders. So medicalization refers to the process where a human condition that was previously understood outside of medical, la- medical language 
gets transformed into a treatable disorder. And it's important to say that it's, it doesn't mean that uh, something is illegitimately medicalized or over-medicalized. It's just that, you know, um, an experience or phenomena has, has come to be subjected to this diagnosis and treatment logic. And my position here is that grief is one of those human conditions that uh, have recently been medicalized. And that is most evident in the creation of diagnostic category uh, now called prolonged grief disorder, uh, which officially got listed in the ICD-11, which is uh, International Classification of Diseases, and then now DSM-5 uh, text revision that's recently published. Prolonged grief disorder, uh, basically uh, what it does is it officializes that if you're grieving too long or too intensely, then you have a mental disorder, right? In the DSM-5 um, text revision, revision language, uh, it says abnormally excessive in duration and or intensity. Uh, this uh, abnormally excessive duration in the DSM is currently defined as 12 months, and in the ICD, it's, it's six months. I like the way you explained that, a diagnose and treat logic. So medicalization in this discussion would be taking grieving, which is universally experienced in some way or another, and then transforming it into a medical phenomenon in this case, prolonged grief disorder. And then once this is done, grief becomes amenable to being fixed or treated. Exactly, yes. And I would add that, you know, we had uh, in grief counseling communities, we have had terms, you know, uh, to describe profound and difficult uh, grief. Um, right, so that's uh, you know, complicated grief was one, prolonged grief was one, uh, disfranchised grief, traumatic grief, um, ambiguous grief. We had all these terms uh, already, but what this disorder category does is that you know, the, the difficult or pr- profound grief that we've been talking about and you know, trying to support outside of medical language or framework now become a mental disorder. There was something unique, perhaps, about prolonged grief disorder. I'm wondering, what was the process? Could you maybe speak to how prolonged grief disorder has come into being? So it dates back uh, over a decade, right? So it goes back uh, around the time when the DSM task force started to prepare the fifth edition of DSM, you know, which eventually published in 2013. Some people might recall that there's a a lot of controversy around uh, the removal of uh, breathing exclusion from major depressive um, disorder diagnosis. And breathing exclusion was uh, was in place up to the DSM-IV-TR And what it did was that it required that health professionals practice, you know, watchful waiting for at least two months, 
before giving a major depression diagnosis to someone who recently experienced the death of a loved one, unless it was a severe case. It's actually, you know, MDD diagnosis had been possible even without taking, you know, uh, without removing um, Bremen exclusion. So this removal of Bremen exclusion allowed people who have lost loved one can receive MDD diagnosis without waiting for for that two-month period. And uh, so Bremen exclusion, you know, uh, the removal of it was very controversial. It was huge, right? But unfortunately, um, it overshadowed the, uh, the other change that was made in DSM-5, which was the inclusion of persistent complex bereavement disorder. And so this inclusion of PCBD didn't receive as much attention as uh, bereavement exclusion because it was not official diagnosis yet. Uh, it went into the section of condition for, conditions for further study. But to me, both I was feeling at the time, but also like in hindsight, it was a kind of it was a watershed moment because basically DSM declared that this is a a sort of a next runner-up disorder, and it paved the way for uh, the addition of a prolonged grief disorder in the ICD-11 in 2019. When I hear you share about this process, I can't help but consider how we're witnessing a type of inflation of a concept, something that was previously seen maybe as a valid response came to be seen as something else. The way medical speak starts to creep into our everyday lives as a diagnostic category expands and is inflated. Mm-hmm. Yes. One of the things you've covered in your work are the institutional forces that may have had a stake or may have a stake in defining grief as a medical thing and the financial and other interests in creating grief disorders. Your work, I believe, has mentioned the ways that critiques of the DSM often are discussing what's referred to as pet diagnoses in the revision process which describes how prominent researchers become invested in their proposed diagnosis, wanting it to grow and be legitimized because their career and their professional success really depend upon that. Do you think that this happened with prolonged grief disorder? Okay, so, you know, obviously I wasn't uh, part of the DSM task force. You know, I'm only career professional. (laughs) And uh, so I, you know, you know, I don't know what transpired, um, you know, how or if the notion of pet diagnosis might have transpired in this case. So I can't say. Uh, but w- what I can glean from the literature, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, in the form of position papers, what I can see is that there, there were two, two camps of prominent researchers uh, who fiercely advocated to have their version of disorder name and corresponding criterion set to be adopted as, uh, as an official disorder. And one camp uh, was for complicated grief disorder and the other, the other camp for prolonged grief disorder. 
And in the end, the naming of prolonged grief disorder was selected, but specific symptoms criteria uh, were drawn from the two criterion sets and kind of went through some negotiation. What I found kind of interesting or almost kind of amusing is that, you know, this decision about which category to be officially adopted was um, in part influenced by uh, non-scientific factors, right? So it's it's interesting uh, to me, you know, because in studies in science, technology, society, you know, they, they often talk about how the scientific knowledge get constructed by a combination of scientific uh, and non-scientific factors and human and non-human factors, right? So the example here is the naming of persistent complex breathing disorder. So it's a, it's a transient unofficial disorder that momentarily entered, in, you know, entered the DSM-5 as a condition for further study. And now, you know, completely perished and, and I was perished forever, right? And, and this was a result, uh, this was a result of a bad compromise, you know? So, you know, as if the, the DSM task force just couldn't pick one over the other, you know? And, you know, the, the naming ended up being uh, a combination of synonyms from two proposed disorder names. So, you know, uh, persistent instead of prolonged, you know, complex instead of complicated. So, yeah, these, these kind of, you know, things kind of come into play in a very interesting way. I would add, though, um, the, the way, you know, pet diagnosis discussed is tied with, you know, uh, the, the researchers who propose the, uh, the diagnosis, right? But... Uh, What's not, you know, um, discussed much is there's, you know, a lot of researchers around. You know, it's not just the, the, those who proposed it, but there, there are, you know, a web of researchers who are, you know, who have stake in that diagnosis, right? So those are the ones who develop screeners, you know, or those, those are the ones who uh, translate it, you know, diagnostic criteria or, um, uh, screeners in another language and validate them in, in other countries, right? So a lot of kind of web of researchers and, you know, uh, institutes and, and those kind of things are, are connected and, and having stake in, you know, those kind of diagnostic categories to get adopted. And, you know, I think, you know, that's the kind of thing that uh, we have yet to see, you know, how that is transpired in, uh great diagnosis. Sure. Yeah. Thank you for speaking to that. I know it is difficult to speculate. And at the same time, there are noteworthy and unusual developments that have transpired that don't seem to be based in new evidence or new scientific findings that led to changes as this diagnosis unfolded. Similarly, what about big pharma or pharmaceutical interests? I wonder if there's more to say about that. So there's a lot have been written about the influence of uh, pharmaceutical companies on the DSM. Um, you know, uh, the, uh, nearly 70% of those who sat on the task force 
for the DSM-5 had financial ties to, you know, pharmaceuticals, you know, we, you know, that's well documented. Uh, one of my favorite example, and, you know, it's favorite, but also t- very chilling story is in the book called uh, Crazy Like Us, written by Ethel Waters. There's this, you know, uh, story, like fascinating but chilling story of how American pharmaceuticals led a campaign in Japan that promoted a bio- biomedical narrative of depression. And of course, that resulted in the blockbuster sale of SSRIs there. Um, now, I don't have any information or facts like that about PGD. So that's an, you know, another thing that we have to see. But what I did find uh, doing literature review is that um, there was this paradoxical rhetoric or claims making that was at play about pharmacological treatment. You know, uh, initially, the, uh, one of the major claims that was used to advocate for medicalization of grief was, was like this. So, okay, we need a new diagnosis for grief disorder, right? Because grieving people are getting major depression or PTSD diagnosis. So they're getting prescribed with SRIs, which we know don't work for grieving people. So let's, you know, so, so to spare them, to spare them from being wrongly medicated, we need, give, we need to give them an, uh, a different diagnosis, right? So that was an argument. So you see the logic was that we need a new diagnosis so that people won't be medicated. But once uh, PCBD entered into DSM-5 as a condition for further study, there was a shift in the rhetoric. Okay, so, you know, now that DSM-5 says that we need more research, let's see what medication work, including SSRIs for people, people with this, you know, soon to be an official mental disorder. And then, you know, of course, there's uh, as uh, there's an RCT, you know, RCT that's on underway, which is you know randomized controlled study on uh, naltrexone, uh, conducted by Holly Preperson, you know, and her team. Which you know, and then this this is the team that's advocated for prolonged grief disorder to be ad- uh, adopted in the DSM. Right? And naltrexone is uh, a medication that is used to treat addiction. So idea behind it is that people who are grieving too much or too long is in the state of addiction to grieving or the reminiscence of people who died. Um, Donna Shaman, who's uh, the, um, from uh, Dagi Center in Oregon, recently uh, wrote a powerful piece uh, article for, for the Madden America website. And it's called uh, The Grief Pill is Coming. And she critiqued um, this prospect of pharmaceutical companies extending their reach to people who are grieving. I did not write about uh, this study, you know, uh, about naltrexin in my paper, but I was aware of that being happening. And uh, what I did write uh, is that, 
you know, at this point, now that we can, we will, you know, we, we have this like, disorder category, it will not be surprising that we will see, uh, we will soon see on the market medication for grief management or grief reduction pills. So the medicalization of grief potentially has the effect of changing the way we understand grieving as a mental disorder. Could you speak more about that? Right. Thank you for for asking this question, uh, because now that I read my paper that's been published, uh, I realize this is the one of the most important points that I wanted to make. And uh, uh, to do that, I think I need to first establish that, you know, as of yet, we don't have a definitive, clear answer to the question of what is mental disorder. Right. Uh, so this is unresolved question that philosophers, sociologists, psychologists, and psychiatrists have been grappling with uh, for many decades. And there's no biological marker for mental disorder. You know, um, there are many genes, proteins, and neurons that are connected to a disorder or this group of disorders. Right. So it's not you know, one biological marker to one disorder. You know, it's, it's more, you know, many-to-many kind of a relationship. And these biological blocks interact with, you know, social and cultural factors. Also, what's considered as mental illness is socioculturally and historically and politically situated, right? So, you know, we know this, you know, we, we think about how, homosexuality was once a DSM disorder, So what's fascinating about medicalizing grief is that um, it induces paradoxes into our understanding of what constitutes mental disorder. And if I say differently, you know, um, then uh, the attempt to medicalize grief ends up illustrating how difficult it is to define mental disorder. So most prominent example that I use is the definition of mental disorder in the DSM. In each successive edition of DSM, uh, DSM contains you know, the DSM version of the definition of, of mental disorder right? uh, in the introduction chapter. And that you know, at least goes back to DSM-3. And and in this definition, bereavement has been used as a counterexample of mental disorder. Uh, a counterexample of mental disorder. So, what mental disorder is not, right? Um, so, in DSM five um, and the DSM five text revision, because it didn't change, it says that uh, it says unexpectable or culturally approved response to common stressor or loss, such as the death of loved one, is not a mental disorder. So to me, uh, medicalization of grief is controversial because it, you know, it may fundamentally shakes up the ground on which the concept of mental disorder had been defined and understood, however provisional that is. It's so often overlooked, you know, that a mental disorder is a shaky concept and it's not fully defined. 
the biological is always interacting with social, political, relational contexts. It brings to mind that one critique of medicalization we know is that when the mental health field demarcates normal and abnormal, what tends to get normalized are the experiences of Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic samples, or what's referred to as WEIRD, the acronym, WEIRD samples. So there's a way in which neocolonial and ableist forces almost collude to further marginalize and render other experiences, other ways of grieving as abnormal. And I think that each time we do that, we risk upholding a status quo and supporting systems that right now aren't serving people. So I discussed this in my paper using the notion of concept creep. So uh, concept creep is proposed by uh, Nick Hasman, who happened to be on, on this podcast a few months ago. And it refers to the expansion of concept through the stretching of its boundaries, thresholds, and meanings. And as a result, the concept comes to encompass a much broader range of phenomena than before. And I see this, you know, I see this concept creep happening uh, both in the evolution of PGD diagnostic criteria, as well as in the very definition of mental disorder uh, being challenged um, right now. I also add a uh, <laughs> side note. Side note to this is, um, you know, the DSM-5 definition that I just mentioned earlier has a reference to culture, where it says, culturally approved response to a common stressor or loss, right? And then uh, PCD diagnostic criteria also have uh, something similar, uh, the norm deviation clause, which says the duration and severity of bereavement reaction must, ex must exceed expected social, cultural, or religious norms for the diagnosis to be warranted. This is an overriding course. So, no, so there's no diagnosis, even if you meet the number of symptoms, if your grief reactions are within the, you know, what's expected in your, your social, cultural, religious context. And this is very important in order to prevent us from misdiagnosing people from different cultures and religions, right? Uh, I, I almost wish that this was criteria A instead of, you know, criteria E, right? So if it's, it's within the you know, social, you know, cultural norms, you don't have to go down the list of symptoms, but it's in criteria E. But uh, I have to say that this is an imperfect um, and a very difficult, you know, uh, criteria to implement, and it's, it has some kind of problematic logic to it for a number of reasons that I discussed in my paper. First, it puts a lot of you know, pressure on the clinician, you know, almost as if you know, they're expected to have training in anthropology or religious studies to know the norms for each culture and religion, right? And that is without taking into consideration for the person's, you know, acculturation, bicultural identity, or intersectionality, 
right? So it's it, it's very complex to assess social norms and you know social cultural norms, and you know most like most psychiatric diagnoses and prescription we know are given by primary doc you know primary care doctors, you know who only see patients for you know 10, 15 minutes per visit per visit, you know if you're lucky, right? I, I'm quite skeptical about, you know, how, how well this normal deviation clause uh, will function in, in the practice. Thanks so much for speaking to that. I've heard that argument before that with this norm deviation clause, clinicians can simply choose to recognize that the way one is grieving may be culturally normative and then not provide a diagnosis. But you're right, that is so much responsibility and power for a clinician to then assess what is or isn't normal based on the person's values, culture, background, relational orientation, and to do that in 10 or 15 minutes. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I find it's, it's quite an impossible task that it's put in place in the DSM. And you know, some might say that adding grief disorders into mainstream diagnostic manuals is a positive thing. Maybe it allows people suffering to access resources and allows for more rigorous scientific study of grief. What would you say or add in response to this view? You know, there's a lot of unpacking to do with the notion of access to care. Robert Spicer, uh, who was the chair of American Psychiatric Association's task force that led to the publication uh, of the DSM-3 in 1980s. He had this short, you know, kind of very short paper entitled, Diagnosis and Need for Treatment are Not the Same. Right? It's a very telling title, you know. So for someone like uh, Robert Spitzer, who's, you know, obviously advocate of uh, DSM, you know, he said that, you know, it is unscientific to use access to care or, or need for treatment as an argument for diagnosis. Theorists of psychopathology also say that, you know, that you can't include that as, a, as part of the definition of mental, mental illness. And, you know, it, it, because it, it leads to diagnostic inflation, basically, right, uh, to the point that it becomes absurd. So if you can think of, you know, examples, uh, right? So for example, couples who don't get along, right? Or couples who need parental skills, right? Um, or young people, you know, uh, who needs guidance with their, their current decisions. Do they benefit from, you know, accessing professional help? Sure. But, you know, are they suffering from mental illness? I don't think so, right? Yeah, so that's the you know important consideration that we can't let the access, you know, access to care as a driving force for 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 creating new diagnosis. There's also social justice piece here um, that's important to consider. So the flip kind of a flip side of the question, who needs care, is the question of who is currently lacking access to care. We know that, you know, this is, you know, the poor people, disempowered, marginalized, historically colonized, right? Um, 
and they, they're the ones, um, they're the ones who also, who are also subject, subjected to traumatic death at a disproportionately higher rate right? as, as a result of political failure, systemic racism, state violence, you know, those kind of things. So access, access to care is important, but if you let it drive diagnostic inflation, we then, you know, um, risk pathologizing these people at a higher rate. Um, I also say that, um, you know, access to care, this is where the logic of, you know, uh, norm deviation fall apart, right? And, and, in, and as a result, challenge the notion of, again, you know, what mental disorder is. So for example, you know, uh, parents who lost a child, in school shooting or any other tragedies, right? What are the social norms around that, you know, in terms of how much or how long they should grieve? You know, is one year enough? Probably not, right? And the research actually shows that they grieve longer than one year. You know, we can say that it's socially expectable that these parents would be grieving intensely you know, beyond a year, two years, three years or more, you know, for the death of their child. Then, you know, would they disqualify for the PGD diagnosis, right? They would, you know, according to what the, the norm deviation clause, right? But here's a paradox. Isn't it that, you know, we wanted to provide care to those people who suffer such agonizing grief, Right? And, you know, this was one of the main justifications, you know, claims making that was used to establish such diagnosis. But because of this, you know, fuzz, uh, you know, like it, it puts um, kind of a, uh, puts clinicians in a conflict. Okay, what do I do? Right. So it's, it's a, and it's almost a moral question here inherent in this, you know, access to care is a, it's a very powerful, you know, a very powerful discursive repertoire, right? It's, it's a moral question, you know. It's almost like we are morally compelled to to give give access, you know, that give access to care because we are we are helping professions, right? But you know, I think there's more difficult questions that we need to ask ourselves. You know, for example, do we really need to give a diagnosis to give access to care? It is the case in the States, right? I know that, you know, diagnosis is, is tied, you know, uh, with third-party reimbursement. But in Canada, you know, here in Canada or in Japan, you know, at least, I know that diagnosis does not dictate access to, to doctor's care or psychologist's care as much as it does in the U.S., right? Then it becomes a question of the healthcare issues. And over the years, you know, we know more and more diagnosis, you know, more and more disorders enter the DSM, right? Has it improved access to care? If it has, what kind of care? You know, psychotherapy, what kind of therapy? Pharmaceutical treatment, you know? Um, DSM diagnosis has become what uh, Charles Rosenberg called um, bureaucratic imperatives. You know, he, he talks about that in his classic paper, The Tyranny of Diagnosis. 
right? And and then it's not about it's not science; it's a bureaucratic imper- imperatives that's driving diagnostic diagnostic inflation. Then, to me, you know, uh, it is time to collectively envision what other ways that we can provide mental health care. Wow! Yeah, that diagnosis and need for care are not the same. That's really resonating with me and how often those two things are conflated, like you're speaking to systemically conflated in the U.S. where diagnosis is needed to have access. And if we use that logic, we are arguing for giving people who are most disenfranchised economically, based on racial identity, gender, so on, or in this case, people who are experiencing a particularly unjust or harrowing loss, like the school shooting example, we're saying, let's give these individuals more diagnoses to get more access, but also access to what? Addiction drugs, a cognitive reframe, just some things I'm considering now in response to what you've said. I'm also left wondering, what can we expect now that prolonged grief disorder has been accepted as an official disorder in the DSM? So it's no longer that we're discussing a potential grief disorder to be further studied, but that prolonged grief disorder has now been legitimized in diagnostic manuals. So, yeah, I alluded to this, you know, when I talk about uh, psychopharmacology, right, and this, you know, surge of efficacy studies, right, uh, that is looking at efficacy of, you know, CBT for grief uh, apps um, on smartphones for those kind of things. This is, you know, obviously new, new diagnostic category. So, we, you know, we don't know what's going to happen, but uh, we know that you know every time the new you know new diagnostic categories come to, to being, there's always this unintended social const- uh, consequences. So I'm very curious to see what comes as a result of medicalizing grief. But in general, based on previous studies on other disorders, you know, um, we know that. When something gets medicalized, it triggers interesting and sometimes, you know, uh, opposing reactions among the public. So one is those who embrace the diagnosis, right? And then those who actively incorporate that, you know, uh, incorporate diagnosis into their self-understanding. And it's understandable because diagnosis validates uh, the challenge that they they might have faced in their lives, right? So, you know, good example is ADHD, autism spectrum disorders. You know, it's like, you know, it's not that I'm lazy or I'm socially unskilled, but I have this, you know, medical condition that explains this, right? In grief research, Esther Cohort, um, she did a, a really interesting study on, uh, you know, mothers who lost a uh, child, uh, you know, the children, and uh, she talked about this kind of normative, normative nature of grief and about normative nature of diagnosis in that, you know, uh, some mothers, you know, takes on diagnosis, diagnostic criteria as something to live up to, right? So the, the fact that I'm experiencing 
these, you know, this disorder shows that I how much I love my child, right? So it's, it's almost like diagnosis taking on its own life, which is quite fascinating. Um, some of those people who embrace diagnosis might take part in, in a patient advocacy movement, right? To get, you know, more access to care or disability benefit, and in that process, they may end up becoming uh, an agent of concept creep, right? Promoting the expansion of, of uh, uh, a disorder category. And then, you know, I don't know what's going to transpire with, with grief, but, you know, they might, you know, say, for example, you know, don't make us wait for, for a year or six months or a year, you know, uh, because it's, it's hard to go back to work, you know, after three days or seven days or, you know, so there might be, you know, kind of a bottom-up voice that promotes medicalization as well. But uh, there's also the other way of responding to medicalizing, you know. Um, so the public may resist or reject medicalization. And uh, neurodiversity movement is one example that we see today. That's also very fascinating, right? So the notion that, you know, it's not that, uh, neurodiverse diverse people suffer from mental illness. What's wrong is the society that's structured around neurotypical people only, right? So that's more of a social uh, model of disability. And something similar could happen with grief as well, right? So people might resist and say, you know, don't call my grief a disorder. Don't even put my grief into a category because it's mine to make sense of. And it's, it's my story to tell, right? Or people might start saying, you know, um, let's make workplaces more compassionate. You know, what is it? You know, what is it in the first place that we expect hyperproductivity all the time and a quick return to normal functioning after major life events like death and illnesses? So, you know, what we might see um, Maybe that, you know, this kind of return to a more humanistic, you know, systemic approach to grief or social change or, or a reject, you know, kind of a reaction against medicalization, right? I even say that this is sort of already happening. It is. I want to add to you that these changes about how grief has been defined are occurring within the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. There is something, I don't know, disturbing to me about looking at the symptoms of grief during a time when our normal rituals have been thwarted. So grieving may be prolonged, but instead of recognizing the extenuating circumstances that are provoking our grief right now, including how the pandemic has exacerbated social inequality, we're proposing how these extreme presentations are indicative of a mental, a medical and problem and a mental health disorder. And then the way that pharma and mental health professionals might profit from this view, like proposing using the drugs for addiction to treat prolonged grief disorder, it's a lot to take in. And notably, the cause of our grieving and the ways our rituals are being disrupted isn't being addressed. So uh, early in the COVID-19 pandemic, the American Psychiatric Association released a document on uh, COVID-19 related death. It's called Consideration for Families and Other 
personal losses due to COVID-19 related death. So in there, um, it's, it's stated that the rate of PGD resulting from COVID-19 related death might be as high as 20%. Okay, so that's, that's really interesting because as of today, you know, over six, 6 million people have died worldwide due to this virus. And for each of these 6 million people, number of you know people who are close to them are left behind and imagine 20 percent of them have this disorder you know if they you know if the apa's estimates is accurate that's a pandemic of this new mental disorder diagnosis yeah but again here where this paradox exists in the uh, this, this norm deviation close right so if it's socially expectable in the in worldwide that you know as high as 20% of you know people will have you know suffer from prolonged grief, then you know, like do we is it the, the norm deviation clause apply or not? Right? It leaves a lot of kind of a contradiction there. It makes me think about how as you're speaking to other ways of understanding, what if we were to recognize that grieving isn't always the problem, but the circumstances provoking prolonged grief or that interrupt our ability to grieve are what is harmful? And from this view, perhaps we even need more grieving if grieving is connected with, is how we connect with community and ritualize and we're suffering when our ability to grieve is interrupted or the circumstances around grief pronounce injustice. In any case, what you're saying that really resonates is allow people to determine what their story is or allow us to consider different contexts. You know, your, your comment uh, reminds me of um, French philosopher uh, Simone Weil. Uh, she said, you know, that evil or bad things exist, coexist in, you know, good things and beautiful things. And our attempts to get rid of, you know, the evil or bad things, you know, sometimes end up destroying the beautiful as well. And I wonder sometimes if, you know, grief is one of those things that uh, is so painful, you know, painful and, and, you know, maybe we want to to take pill to get rid of it, but at the same time, there's something humane and beautiful in there, and and that experience to hold the the complexity of that when we think about cultures of care and what that means. Mm-hmm, that's right. So. Kauri, what is next for you and your research? Is it true that recently you've been involved in community-engaged research with Indigenous communities? So yeah, um, I've been involved in uh, Indigenous research with my colleague, Dr. Crowley Feldman, um, who is a Cree and Métis um, researcher. And uh, uh, it's still too early for me to say much about kind of the Indigenous way of grieving. Uh, because to do an Indigenous research and uh, as as non-Indigenous researcher, I first you know have to 
to make an entry into the community in a good way. Still learning by, you know, staying in the community, living together, eating together <laughs> with, you know, people in the community and being part of ceremonies and sweat lodges um, in the community. You need to be very careful, you know, for speaking for them um, because misrepresentation and appropriation of their knowledge and traditions have been part of the colonial history, right? Uh, so it will take, you know, take me more uh, time to learn, reflect, and to decolonize my way of thinking process. And that involves, you know, to a certain degree, unlearning of my mainstream psychology training. But one thing I can say, though, is, uh, you know, I can say this because this is what, you know, uh, Indigenous scholars have been writing and talking about already, is that uh, their grief is tied with the ongoing colonial, colonial history and power. Right? So there's collective grief over children who did not return from residential schools, 60s groups, you know, missing and murdered children and women, suicide and you know, substance overdose death uh, resulted from uh, the despair that was implanted by colonialism. And at the same time, it's important to acknowledge that there's uh, also collective wisdom and, uh, and resiliency, right? And, you know, resiliency that, you know, is not individual kind of trait, but it's more of a collective, you know, survivance. There. Also, the indigenous way of grieving is, uh, is very much connected with their spirituality, right? So it's, you know, uh, through their connection with the land, spirits, and the creator. So to me, um, what I'm starting to, to really um, to understand is that to conceptualize their grief from the DSM's, you know, uh, or Western psychology is very individualistic, uh, non-spiritual, uh, pathology-based framework and providing care and treatment based on that framework would be yet, you know, another form of colonial violence. What gets pathologized is socially, historically embedded. And oftentimes, it's the dominant power that decides it. Thank you. It helps us to speak to the context that's informing the more mainstream ways of thinking and to subvert it, to consider what other ways of thinking and understanding grief could be construed. It's harrowing to think about how grief is decontextualized from its colonial history. I imagine, what does it mean that part of what we have to offer someone who's experienced colonial violence, such as a murdered or missing loved one, is a diagnosis, a response that they are suffering from a mental disorder? What a way to reduce complexity and place disorder in a person. Mm -hmm. That's right. Thank you for speaking with me today, Dr. Kauri Wada. Really edifying to discuss these major changes around grief with you. Oh, thank you so much. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's a fascinating topic and it's, uh, I think we are in the key moment in the history, you know, when we think about grief, which is 
such a human experience, right? Um, so it's, uh, it's in, you know, thank you very much for, you know, uh, giving me the opportunity to talk about this. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.